So we are joined by a good friend of mine, Lionel, from the Winnipeg Fire Department. And I've had the honor of working with Lionel for a little while now and hearing some of his professional stories and personal stories. And during the course of this discussion, I really want to you know, get Lionel's perspective on a few things, one of which the emotional impact of leadership and, and crisis in general. And he's also in a very interesting position of moving into a more formal leadership position. And as everybody navigates what this crisis is, and in this context, it's COVID, but replace COVID with any other crisis. There's a lot of things I think that Lionel, you'll be able to bring to the table that will allow folks to just, you know, pick that up and apply it to their own own situations. So really briefly, can you give us a quick bio of who is Lionel? Certainly. Yes. Um, I've been in the fire service for over 22 years now and started out in a, a small town volunteer uh, department where um, is really small where you're taking basically care of your neighbors, you know, and I, I basically started into this training uh, because at the time I was working with my dad, he was a retired RCMP member, had a business and I thought, man, how am I going to, something happens to him, how do I take care of him? And so I started my training with CPR and all those things locally and which turned out into loving the fire service. And I went to my training and later on got on with Winnipeg. And now I'm out as a lieutenant with the city of Winnipeg. So it's safe to say that it was kind of that, not just a cliche for you, but you were called to serve essentially and, and to help others. Would that be that be accurate? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I grew up with it. Like I loved what my dad did as an RCMP. Um, he was a coach. He was a manager. He was a lion in the Lions Club and a Mason. And he served community. You know, he, was, he wasn't uh, a disciplinarian type man. He was a friend. And that's how he treated his community when he was serving as an RCMP. He would drop those kids off that were in trouble instead of throwing them in the jail. You know, he'd rather take them to the parents and say, hey, your son, you know, all those type of things. That's his, his form of community. And, and I loved the man that he was. And he learned that from his, his father as well, a very a good man as well. So, well, this, and, and I think that well, we may get there in this conversation, but the evolution of leadership, and it sounds like your dad was a little bit ahead of his time. And when I say a little bit, probably by 25, 30 years ahead of his time. Would you agree with that? Well, the 70s were quite a, an 80s, you know, a different time for the RCMP. And, but also the community was a very tight-knit community. So he wasn't just an RCMP. He was part of that community. So I really appreciated how those things used to be done uh, for the RCMP back in those times. Those, uh, those were the days. So <laughs> obviously you've gone through a, a very traumatic event, and, and I'm not going to deep dive into it here, but it's an important conversation to have because it will lead us into the discussion around, you know, the emotional impacts of certain events and crisis and how we deal with them. And I think one of the things that, you know, we may draw out of this is how we deal with stress and our emotions in the moment will have a direct impact on how it affects us moving forward. And maybe if you could talk about some of the challenges that you faced with regard to what does it look like moving forward when there isn't a playbook, because crisis in your example is it was an extremely personal, visceral experience, and you know obviously something that there is no playbook for. So I'd be you know we'll lead into that conversation a little bit afterwards. But can you just give us an idea of, of what your experience was you know, on uh, Grey Cup Sunday back then? Or no, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, right? it's legal U.S. Right. style. <laughs> yes, and, and this was back in 2007 for uh, February 4th uh, Super Bowl. 
and I was called in on an overtime shift and just those normals, all those normal things of being called in on a Sunday night, all those predictors were there. Like I, you know, we were a young family at the time. Our boys were little, four and two and young family and overtime was like king, you know, getting that extra shift here and there would really help. So it was just a normal thing getting called in and going to my home station even and working downtown and then getting that call, which was just a, a garage fart, attached, uh, attached garage fart. Going in and all those normal things happened. And, and that's probably the biggest takeaway from this for myself is it was such a normal event that turned totally sideways on us. And and how especially how quickly it happened. You know, responding, uh, a normal response for us to a residential alarm. I was going in with the crews I knew. We were going in doing those same tasks, going doing what I was doing, a primary search with my partner. He was a friend of mine too, having fun with a working fire. And then when it changed you know that's when that playbook really did change on us where we're basically scrambling uh when it uh, the started to transition and it transitioned into a flashover trapping us to the second floor um, my partner and i were separated um i managed i found one of the captains i managed to get him into one of the bedrooms and i broke out a window and unfortunately wasn't able to get him out in time and uh that's where captain harold lassard he passed away and also another captain tom Captain Tom Nichols, where I, I jumped through the window uh, on the second floor to uh, escape it. Man, not never a dry eye in the house when you're going through the full spectrum of, of that experience. And you also had a partner that you were looking after and, and in the fire service, it's a very close, when you go into a hazardous environment, you've got your buddy there and yeah. you became separated from him as well. So a lot of what you were dealing with during that period of time, you, you felt, I'm assuming, pretty alone and, and pretty darn confused, I'm sure. Well, during the event, one of the, at the initial separation when we got, uh, I got knocked down and separated from my partner, that's where that panic really did sep- or start because it was different. Something had changed and, and I was in an unknown area. I, did, I was very disoriented and that's where you really felt that panic set in of the unknown because of blackout situation, extreme heat and pain. Pain changes that response to the plan that you have. And, uh, but the one thing that really did almost uh, make me focus was finding the captain. And now not only was I uh, in survival mode, I was working for someone else, which was sort of a focused mindset. So I had something to do, not just focus on my own fears. I was working for him at the same time. So that one thing, uh, really did help me through that moment because I wasn't alone. Um, helping work, trying to work for Harold, trying to get him out. I uh, was that focused plan that I did have until I couldn't get him out that window. So let's talk about the first, let's say, few weeks following that particular event and, and the emotional impact that it has. Because what I'm hearing you say is it was quote-unquote routine, just like a corporation pre-crisis always is. It's do da 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 and then you realize that something had changed. Now, following that event, you know, horrendous physical injuries, but the psychological impact of that. What, what were you feeling, not physically, but in terms of the emotion and the stress where you didn't really know what to do moving forward? Just like a lot of people going through any crisis, part of the thing that, that we cling to is having a, you know, knowing where to move forward to or to have somebody help us. But in your particular situation, what does that do emotionally and stress-wise to somebody that, you know, your, your entire purpose maybe, uh, you know, is, is definitely thrown out the window for, I guess, no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> so yeah, what, what does that look like for the first few weeks? You know, the first, especially first few days and weeks were, uh, was so much fear and unknown because not only did I, I didn't know of our, my job, my future as a firefighter, I didn't know what my life was going to be like. All you saw was burns and then grafted skin, uh, not even recognizing yourself anymore. Um, and then creeping in was the survivor guilt of, okay, why me? Why didn't they make it? Why did I? feeling that I failed, not being able to get Harold out. Like those, all those things were happening mixed with the emotions of not being able to see my little boys, uh, not knowing what my wife and I were going to do now, especially economically and, and uh, with my job. And am I going to be able to return as a firefighter? Because it didn't look like I would. And, and it's an important point to make because we think of safety and when we wrap leadership around it, we typically think of safety in a physical sense, but, I think it's important, and I'd like to hear your comments on that, on this, with regard to part of the leader's responsibility, um, whether it be at the family level or small unit level or corporate level, whatever that looks like, part of the responsibility is the psychological safety for the people that you look after. And so when you're talking about not knowing your economic future, like it's not a physical issue by any stretch, but what, what's going through your mind? Why is that such a, why is that such a big deal? Yeah, because... At the time, my wife had just returned back to work after maternity leave. You know, she wasn't uh, full-time at that point. And being a young family, you relied on both jobs. And at that time, I did all the finances. So those are huge things that my wife had to learn the hard way. She had to realize, okay, what bills had to be paid? What password did I use for our online banking? All those things were unknowns because we didn't even have a will, you know, at that time. All those things were uh, so new to us as a young couple, you're you know, I'm a young firefighter, only, I was only seven or eight years on the job. You're, you're bulletproof, you know, you're going to these things. It's fun. It's exciting. It's what you dreamed of. And then all of a sudden everything went sideways. And I think it's important. And just so we're clear, I'm not drawing a parallel between what happened to you and what's happening. Let's say COVID in this example, but you know, there's people getting laid off now and really having the same kind of thoughts that you're having. So I wouldn't mind, you know, diving right into this, given your wisdom, what, what, what could you tell the people that have either maybe lost their jobs or it's, there's a big, big potential because the feelings that you felt are, I would argue are probably very similar, if not identical to that person. Maybe it's the young executive, maybe it's the young leader that, you know, they just got out of university, they got the, the great job and, yeah. and they're like, okay, I'm finally there. I've just, had a kid, just bought a house because I'm settled, you know, like I'm a, I'm an adult now. Yeah. And, and so what, what could you, what, what's, what are some things that, that you learned along the way that helped you that might be able to help somebody else? You know, initially it was the biggest fear I think was not having a plan, not having a guidebook. What's, what do you do with as a burn injured firefighter to get back to work? And the biggest thing I found that gave me a solace and also confidence was a plan, making a plan. Okay, we're going to give this number of uh, time period, and this is our goal. And my goal was to get back to work physically within the year. And that was the best thing I could have done, and especially for Joanna to my wife, because it gave me motivation. It gave me a, a goal to set and actually try to achieve. And Right now, I, I see it. I can totally empathize with looking around our, our communities. And there's no, there's no guidebook for this. Like, when is the last time the world is shut down because mm -hmm. of a, a global pandemic? You know, and this has never happened in this, this, in this way. 
uh, especially in our lifetime, you know, mm-hmm. but having that, that initial plan or just a goal, I think was one of the biggest things. And um, I wish I could have seen my end result and then go back and do it again. I wish, I really wish I could have, because um, my everything, everything we did was physical, the physical, because I could see it. I could see the recovery. I could see things getting better, but nothing about the mental recovery. Mm-hmm. It's about how you talk to yourself. What's your plan? What's going on in that head where you formulate all the plans? The physical what, side is what, what are you thinking in terms of, you know, that, that inner dialogue? And I think part of one of the pillars I'd like to talk about is inner mastery and, and words matter. Not just the words that we tell to other people, but more importantly, the words we tell ourselves. And so yeah. can you talk about what that internal dialogue looked like? Because let's face it, you know, in your particular case, physically down and out, potentially economically. And if anyone was to look at that from the external, they'd say, man, oh man, dude, like tap out, tap out. So how do you turn, first of all, what, what did you start to tell yourself and how difficult or how did you start to make that shift to say that, you know what, I am going to get out of this. So tell Talk about what that process looked like. Initially, initially it was the uh, the goal of the physical recovery. Um, the motivation was what happened, and that I would not let it happen again. Be- become that strong, strength-wise person that I, I wasn't at that time. Like I was, you know, I was a young guy at the time when it happened, and thought I could do it, and I had done it in drills and training. But that was my motivation, especially in the gym, especially when I'd be preparing. And then my wife even gave me that and said, this is your new job, going to the gym. Going to the gym is your new job. And because I'd feel guilt about being away from our little boys and not having that routine of providing, you know, but going to that gym was. But to be honest, in those first few months and years, it wasn't a positive motivation. The motivation that I had was the failure of the event. And I learned that not right away, but when I went back to work. I realized that the motivation I had to save Harold, to rescue him and be strong enough and, and practice and do it all I could to change the ending. So going through the process of the goal of back to work was excellent. It did work for me. And, and so I, that provides that end state, right? It gives you that focus. And, and I think another important point is that you didn't pick five years down the road right? Or 10 years, what does it look like? So was that a deliberate conscious thought with regard to, look, let's, I'll just pick a year or how did that come about? I think it's uh, mostly because it was achievable with the, with the return to work, with the burn injuries, with the grafted skin. um, I'd have to be cleared through from my burn surgeon, all those things. And we're sort of, we sort of based it on what they were telling us sort of, okay, this is what you're thinking. And this is what you're going to be up against. Because the skin sensitivities and the hypersensitivity of my hands, all those things I had to think about. Plus working with grafted skin, um, it doesn't sweat. You know, like uh, 70% of my, uh, my body doesn't sweat. So I had to really learn how to thermoregulate and, and to recognize those signs when all of a sudden I'd be on the gym floor fainted because I pushed it too hard. Yeah. Well, and let's face it, even before the incident, you didn't work hard enough to break a sweat anyway so probably yeah. in the end wasn't a huge impact <laughs> yeah it was like a card just a card just a cardio guy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, just kidding folks at the <laughs> utmost respect i'm not gonna cry in front of you no. yeah that exactly and and so i'm assuming you know all of the the catastrophic thoughts that are going through your head like that's probably all encompassing and 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 people are probably telling you externally, hey, Lionel, don't worry, you're going to get through this, or it could be worse, right? Did you hear that at all, that it could have been worse? 
I had that a lot. I had uh, some people that would basically say, like when I would say have a down day, like, man, I just, I don't know what it is. I, I, I wasn't myself, you know, feeling it was that negative thought in your background of failure of especially losing another firefighter was devastating. And then to verbalize that to someone, I'm like, I just don't, I don't feel good or, or not myself like I was. And they said, well, could have been worse. You could have been like them, right? And I'm like, that wasn't the real self-talk that I really was needing. Uh, so I had to focus on other things. Other motivations had to kick in. And for the first few months and years, I worried about what people thought because of the, the loss, you know, for that fear of failure again and the trust that I, I really relied on for my crew. So I had to really change how I thought. Like I had to really start to internalize and say, okay, like it didn't go well for the first few months and even the first year because it would be um, the highs and lows were much higher and deeper. You know, you'd be this accelerated, good feel, great gym workout, and then you'd come home and the kids would spill milk and it was the end of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, so you'd have those highs and lows because of the failure. If something went wrong, it was extreme, but the good was amazing, right? So I had those, didn't have a balance yet. Mm -hmm. And this might be a, an odd question, but what were, your, what were your feelings around having those feelings? So in other words, you know, we're often our own worst critic and, and hey, you, idiot, you shouldn't be feeling this way or why are you still feeling like crap? It's been 60 days or whatever. And the reason I ask is because oftentimes we don't give ourselves the grace we grant to other people. And so somebody that's going through any kind of traumatic event, you know, we're, we're very quick to judge ourselves in terms of how we should be feeling. So what were your feelings around how you felt, if, if that makes sense. Yes, I, I didn't accept the failure, the feelings of failure. Um, I didn't think I deserved it those first few months and years because of the fact I, I didn't rescue Harold. I didn't believe at the time, I, and plus I wasn't educating myself at that point. I was just pushing physically, pushing physically, not really focusing on what that brain was trying to tell me you know, my internal voice, uh, that I, I just had to be hard on myself because there was no excuses. Yeah. And so then, so if I heard you correctly, one of the big things was creating some sort of a goal with the timeline associated with it. Mm -hmm. And then it's just an act of visualizing what that looks like and kind of backwards planning what that might, might look like. What yeah. else got you through that per period of time. And again, because the, this somewhat mirrors an experience of people that, again, th there's a lot of uncertainty in the world in general. So what, what else really helped you get through the, uh, the, the trauma of your particular event? I think it was, I think about four or five months after getting out of the hospital, we actually were introduced to a trauma specialist, uh, Dr. Bill Davis. He had dealt with the Oklahoma bombings down there. Uh, he dealt with 9-11. He was with FDNY for over a year. And luckily, he was actually from Winnipeg, and, and he was here, and they contracted to him. And just a few sessions here and there just to see where we were. Um, we actually went for another member that was involved. And then by the end of that session, we all had appointments. Um, he helped me understand that what I was feeling was normal uh, and not push them aside, that it was my fault or I shouldn't be feeling this way, that it's a human, it was human nature how I was feeling, the guilt, the, uh, the wish I could have done better, all those things of a, of a person that in our, especially in our profession, that failure was not an option. And never experiencing extreme failure like this either. I had no, nothing to refer to. I had nothing that I can go back and say, oh yeah, this is like this and this is how I got through it. 
I'd never experienced failure. Like growing up as a kid, hockey teams and sports teams, like always winning. I'd never experienced this type of loss. So in terms of that, let, let's go back to that one year from now. Did you ever find yourself saying, hey, you know what, a year's a long time. What does it look like tomorrow? You know, did you have kind of this accordion effect of, of what your reference point was? Because, and I'll just speak for myself, I know that when I've gone through troubled times, sometimes it's literally, look, you know, Daryl, think about the future. I'm like, future? I just, I'm worried about the next four hours right now. Did you experience that as well? And if so, how did you, how did you get through that? Initially in the beginning, those first few days and uh, hours of after the incident and being in the hospital, it was like that. It was basically just basically praying for, okay, just get me through this. Like asking, okay, I just, I need help here. Wondering what the next day is going to be like begging for the itching to stop after the grafting, the, the stiffness, the pain, uh, just basically when is it going to stop? Those type of things really came up, especially when the healing started in the, the grafted skin graft sites is unbearable, you know, and I didn't want to take the medication. I didn't want to be numb anymore, mm -hmm. you know, taking the hydromorphone and all those things where you, you had no memory retention, you didn't even, you felt like you're just existing, like you weren't even there anymore, you know. So I, I got off the medication just to start the process of thinking again and, and taking control back of what's going to happen. But I do remember many times of thinking, okay, how long is this going to last? Like, is it going to be a week of this itching and stiffness and pain, weakness, not being able to hold up your own toothbrush? Like, how long? And you know, all those little things, I, I remember those first initial months of those, when am I going to be able to walk again? You know, those, I remember, I definitely remember those. And seeing my son riding his bike out front when I was laying in bed, not able to be there. I was looking at like, how long am I going to be like this? And who's, who's raising my kids? You know, mm -hmm. all those little thoughts. Especially so it would be, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what it sounds like is when the first, you know, through crisis, the process, if you will, that you went through was just trying to get through the immediate short term, hour by hour. And then you start to realize that, you know what, I am potentially going to make it through because I have to. Mm -hmm. And then you set that goal moving forward. But I think it's safe to say that over the first few you know, weeks, probably, if somebody would have said set a goal for one year, it probably wouldn't have resonated with you at all because you just psychologically and physically weren't there. Would, would that, be, yeah. that be accurate? That's exactly it. Like those first initial days, especially in the burn center to the first few days and weeks coming home, the goal was back to work. And just like I said, walking was a huge goal. Like, when am I going to be able to without fainting? Because I had lost half my blood supply without a transfusion. Uh, but then it was the when success started, when those little successes started to build and build and build off them off of each other when I could start walking, when I started to be able to go to my, a gym and start feeling that strength, that physical strength is when the goals really started. And did you make it a conscious effort to celebrate those wins or what would you recommend to other people? Because I know there's a lot of psychology around. Sometimes it's like, yeah, that's nothing. That's nothing. But really incremental improvement is just that incremental. So did you find yourself celebrating that consciously wanting to get better? What did that look like? It was a very, very small celebration. I did it. It was more internalized. My wife was tremendous through it because my first walk unaided 
with the kids to the park. It was a huge celebration. I remember her driving by, um, bringing the car in case I needed to, if I fainted or, and it was a huge success. It looked that way, but inside me, I was moving on already. Mm-hmm. I didn't celebrate initially. I would move on to the next, okay, what's next? And I did that for a number of years, actually accumulating, trying to accumulate, move on, okay, what do I have to do now? I never really took the time until a number of years ago where I finally looked back at what we have done, like Joanna and I both in these 13 years, and to actually take a look and say, no, I, I don't have to do anymore. And, and I think it's important to draw out the, the fact that if you were to do it over again, what it looks like is you realize that you weren't necessarily processing the journey or processing what was happening throughout the journey and it had some, um, maybe some impacts for years after. So would I be correct in saying that if somebody else is going through a crisis, maybe they've lost their job, they've lost a sense of identity, they've lost whatever, that it's important that they process as they move along? Would that be, and, and if the answer is yes, they should process, what would you recommend? How, how, do, they, how do they process that? Yeah, well, like say if I have to go back and redo what we did, I wouldn't change um, the timelines or anything. But the one thing I wish I would have done was have a bit of a, a journal of, of see where I was then. Those first few thoughts, those first few days, weeks, months to years to where I am now. Like I could actually have that and go back. And even if it's a picture of where that, how that skin used to look to where it is now, just that comparison to have that comparison, because now you're like, I remember I made a comment once, well, if it happens again, I know we can get to it. Joanna's like, never want to have that happen again. You know, <laughs> And you, your brain really works on it and your brain makes it acceptable because you got through it successfully. Even though we had a lot of bumps along the way, I'll be honest, like my life is great where we are right now. now I don't know where we're going to be with all these things happening in the world, but I know that Joanna and I and my kids are strong together. You know, that's one of the biggest thing, takeaways. And if I could look back, I think I could even build more from the experience. Just go back and say, look where it was. And what were some of those ups and downs and how did I respond to them? You know, I wish I could have a few of those because I have memories of them and where I end up and what I do now because of it. But to have that written dialogue or a picture or some sort of um, reminder of even though it was a good or a bad, what did I do? And I think you could even use that as a running log every 60 days, every 90 days, because you're talking about leaps and bounds in a very short period of time. So the walk to the park, in contrast to, you know, a few months before that, you're not even sure if you're going to going to be able to walk. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that's important because a lot of times too, we don't want help either, right? Whether it be pride or, or whatever the, the case is. And, you know, I'm just going to deal with it myself. And it sounded like that was a lot of what, what you were going through as well, which I think is pretty typical. Would, would you agree? Yeah, that's exactly it. Like I was, uh, I didn't want to ask for help because of that failure felt and also the the thought of what others were thinking. Like it was such an unknown. Like I never, I never had anybody made me feel bad about that incident. Never. They're always building me up and supporting me, but I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't looking for them to go, oh, it's okay. No, I, I wasn't. I didn't want any excuses. I didn't want anyone to give me a lift. I, I had to prove it to myself. And, and that's, it was a hard journey. Um, it, I learned many things from it in, in the way we did it. But I did have those people, though. I did have some people later, a couple of years after that, where I started to lean on. You know, it was the trust building that I really had to have. Uh, I didn't have that initially in that first uh, year. I had Joanna, though, like my wife. Luckily, we made it through it. 
because it was such a hard thing on her because I had pain management, but she didn't, you know. And I'm assuming, you know, from the outside too, if, if I'm a partner of somebody that's gone through a traumatic event, I don't know what to say, you know, and, and I could say one thing one day that the next day is the complete opposite. So it'd be like, are we an opposite day today? Like what's like, happening here? Right? Like it would yesterday be... and you laughed, but I was on a lot of medication. And... <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> Right. 